Let me invite you to turn to Judges chapter 15 this evening. Judges chapter 15. I love to read the stories of great believers of the Old Testament. I love to read about how God uses them for His purposes when they obey Him and trust Him. I love to read about Abraham and how he trusted God even though God had commanded him to sacrifice his only legitimate son. I love to read about Joseph and how he trusted God despite the mistreatment that he received from his brothers and from people throughout Egypt. I love to read about David when he fought Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. His main concern there was that Goliath was defying the armies of the living God. He was willing to stand up for the sake of God's name. It wasn't so much that he personally was was seeking vengeance on Goliath, but he was concerned about God's fame. I love to read about the three young men in the book of Daniel who were commanded to bow down to the 90-foot idol, but they would not, even at the risk of their own life. And that's because they were concerned about the fame of God and they were concerned about their own personal obedience to God. And God loves to use those kinds of people. He loves to use people who are faithful to Him and who are concerned about magnifying His name, who are concerned about glorifying Him, who are concerned about trusting in Him and obeying Him. God loves to use those kinds of people. And then there's Samson. It's true that Hebrews 11 lists him as a man of faith, so we should not discount his faith. But when you look at his life as a whole, as far as what we have recorded for us in Scripture, he seems to be a man who has very little concern for the things of God, much less God the person himself. He comes across as a self-absorbed, vengeful, proud man. And yet somehow... God uses him in spectacular ways to cut the ties between Israel and the Philistines. So that's what we're going to read about this evening and study in Judges chapter 15. Let me read our passage for us, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. But after a while in the time of his wife, uh, in the time of wheat harvest, Samson visited his wife with a young goat and said, I will go into my wife in her room. But her father did not let him enter. Her father said, I really thought that you hated her intensely, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please, let her be yours instead. Samson then said to him, This time I shall be blameless in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches and turned the fox's tail a tail and put one torch in the middle between the two tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he released the foxes into the standing grain of the Philistines, thus burning up both the the shocks and the standing grain along with the vineyards and groves. Then the Philistines said, Who did this? And they said, Samson, son-in-law of the Timnite, because he took his wife and gave her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Samson said to them, Since you act like this, I will surely take revenge on you. But after that, I will quit. He struck them ruthlessly with great slaughter, and he went down and lived in a cleft in the cleft of the rock of Etam. Then the Philistines went up and camped in Judah and spread out in Lehi. The men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? And they said, 
We've come up to bind Samson in order to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cliff, the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, Do you not know what the Philist- that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you so that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not kill me. So they said to him, No, but we will bind you fast and give you into their hands. Yet surely we will not kill you. And they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. And when he came to Lehi, the Philistines shouted as they met him. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily so that the ropes that were on his arms were as flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds dropped from his hands. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, so he reached out and took it and killed a thousand men with it. Then Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have killed a thousand men. When he had finished speaking, he threw the jawbone from his hand, and he named that place Ramoth Lehi. Then he became very thirsty, and he called to the Lord and said, you have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, and now you shall and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? But God split the hollow place that is in Lehi so that water came out of it. And when he drank, his strength returned and he revived, and therefore he named it En Hakor, which is in Lehi to this day. So he judged Israel twenty years in the days of the Philistines. God accomplishes His purposes through flawed people. God accomplishes purposes through flawed people. In verse, verses 1-8, through 8, we see Samson's revenge on the Philistines. He, he goes over to Timnah, the place where his wife lives, in order to get her back. Remember the last time that, that we came across them, um, he had betrayed, or, or she had betrayed him. Right? In chapter 14, verse 17, she was begging him to give the answer to the riddle that he had given to the companions, and finally she gets it out of him. And what does she do with it? She passes it over to these Philistines. And the Philistines uh, make him pay up his debt. And in order to do that, Samson kills 30 Philistines from about 30 miles away and brings their clothing back to pay his debt. And after paying up his debt, because they had solved his riddle by cheating, effectively, he, he was frustrated with her. He had no desire for her. And so he leaves her there in Timnah and heads back and lives with his parents' house. Now, remember, this whole time, the time that he had been spending with his wife, was really just a wedding feast. So he didn't even have his, his honeymoon exactly uh, uh, yet. And so, so he just leaves her, hung out to dry. He heads back home to his parents' house, and apparently after some time, he comes back during the wheat harvest, as we read here, beginning of chapter 15, and he starts to think about her. And this is what happens when a person who has some time, this is what happens when their temper has some time to cool down a little bit. You start to think more rationally, like, this is my wife, this is the person I loved, I'm going back to her. Remember the story of King Xerxes and Esther 1? Xerxes had this huge banquet for all these military men. 
with lots of drinking. And at some point, he sends for his queen, Queen Vashti, to come and entertain him and the guests. But as I mentioned when we were studying through this, he wasn't asking her to come and tell some jokes or to entertain with a funny story. And she knew exactly what he wanted out of her, and she refused to entertain them in that way. And as a result, his leading men, his counselors, decided to encourage him to make a law to banish Queen Vashti from his presence. You're gone. We're not going to have anything to do with you anymore. You're no longer the queen. I'm not even going to see you anymore. But then, in Esther chapter 2, we read this. After these things, so apparently after he had some time to settle down, when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti. He remembered her. He remembered that he loved her and that this was his wife, but no more. Remember, this was, this was ratified with the laws of the Medes and the Persians. This could not be revoked. He, and because he remembered that, what had been decreed against her, he could do nothing. And this is when he starts having all these virgins come in and, and entertain him in that way in order for him to pick a new queen. Well, Samson is in a similar situation. He was frustrated. He was so frustrated that he was willing to depart from his wife because of her betrayal by taking this information and giving it to the Philistines. But now that he's had some time, time to cool down, he wants to get back, get, get on with his life with his Philistine wife. And so he heads back to Timnah in the Philistine region just west of, of the Dead Sea. And she's living there with her family still. Uh, apparently she's been given over to a companion, so I'm not sure if she's actually married this companion of his. Whatever the case, he brings, that is, Samson brings along a goat, likely the payment that you would make for uh, a wife who is staying with her, her parents. But notice at the end of verse 1, chapter 15, but her father did not let him enter. He wouldn't let her enter. Instead, verse 2, he offers this Philistine woman's younger sister. And here's how Samson responds in verse 3. This time I shall be blameless in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. In other words, I'm going to get back at them for what they have done to me. And we're going to have a clean slate now because they have rejected me from... In, this, in essence, this father has rejected me from my own wife, so I'm going to get back at them. So in order to get back at them, Samson comes up with this amazing plot, and it is to destroy their crops. Samson could have just taken a torch and walked through the wheat fields and just started destroying the wheat fields by hand. But instead, his creativity allowed him to destroy even more crops than he had the ability to do on his own. Now, notice verse 4, what he uses. Samson went and caught 300 foxes. Now, just, just so that we know, the Hebrew word for foxes is also the same Hebrew word for jackals. And this is not a huge you know, translational issue, but, but this could also be referring to jackals. Now, the only reason I mention that is because jackals have longer tails and less bushy tails. It would be a lot easier to tie together. And the other thing is, is that Samson is going to have to catch 300 of them and jackals tend to run in packs, whereas uh, foxes are, are, tend to be lone ranger type animals. So, in order to destroy these crops, Samson sends. He first has to do something. 
he first has to corral 300 jackals. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to catch a fox or a jackal, but I'm guessing they don't just come running to you if you whistle. You know, most likely, Samson would have had to use some kind of a trap in order to catch this many animals. And it doesn't say how long of a period of time. Whatever the case, he ties their tails together with a torch between the two tails, and he sets them off in the wheat fields. Now, again, he could have just set them off all in one wheat field, and he could have destroyed one wheat field. But the way that I imagine it, and the text doesn't say, is that he would take one pair of jackals and put them in, in one wheat field. And then they're going to tear each other apart trying to get, get away from that fire and, and the knotted tails, and that wheat field will be destroyed. And he takes another pair and puts it in. So, so he could have destroyed up to 150 fields of wheat. In addition to that, we read in verse 5 that he also destroyed um, these vineyards and olive groves at the end of, uh, of the verse. So as a bonus, these jackals also set fire to the vineyards. And this actually was more devastating than burning the wheat because the wheat could be replanted the next season. It would be easily, easily just you know, uh, the field sowed and then um, planted again. But with the olive, grow to, olive groves and the vineyards, it would take much longer. In fact, they tend to take several years before you can even start to see any crop, and then even the first crop is not that good. And so to get back to where they were, it would take several years. Well, as you can imagine, the Philistines were not happy. And that's what we find out in verse 6. They find out who did this, and they're told that it was Samson. And they also find out the reason why he did it. And it was that his father-in-law would not let him come back to his Philistine wife. And so what do they do? Look at the end of verse 6. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. In other words... They killed them. They burned them to death. In chapter 14, verse 15, the Philistines had threatened the same fate to the Philistine wife if she didn't get the riddle, the answer to the riddle for them. And now look how quickly they turn on her again. Really, of no fault of her own. They spoke in chapter 14 as if they were going to protect her from Samson. But here in chapter 15, verse 6, we see how quickly they are to betray her. She would have been better off. Now, now we looking back can see it very clearly, but she would have been better off confiding in Samson who had power to destroy them. Instead, she confided in them and ended up being killed by them. And so as we can imagine, Samson's not going to just let this go. And that's what we find out in verses 7 and 8. Notice he says, Since you act like this, I will surely take revenge on you, but after that I will quit. Okay, so with this promise of revenge, as we are not surprised by this, we also have a vow to quit. But to me, it's like an alcoholic who says, You know, I'm just going to have this one more drink, and then I'm going to be done. Or the person who's addicted to pornography, you know, just one more look and then never again. I mean, it's, it's ringing very hollowly for Samson to, to say this. Just one more act of vengeance and that it. Do you think the Philistines were going to give up after he does this to them? Absolutely not. They're going to respond with vengeance as well. And so this is going to be a never-ending cycle. And if you know the rest of the story, you know what happens. 
And he actually spends his entire life going back and forth with them. This vengeful attitude. In verse 8, we find out what he does in this second act in this chapter of vengeance, which is, he struck them ruthlessly with great slaughter. Literally, he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. In the margin of your Bible, it might say something like leg on thigh. And that's just... Um, it could be that he, he really wrestled them into knots and he, he took a thousand Philistines and wrestled them by hand and just had all their legs up in knots and killed them this way. But, but other scholars believe, that that's what some scholars would say, other scholars believe that it's simply an idiom. It's an expression for destroying them ruthlessly. And I think that's the intention. And I think this is a good translation that we have here in the New American Standard. Um, that, that he destroyed them ruthlessly. Well, after this, he heads to the cleft of the rock at Edom. We find out at the end of verse 8. This is just about 15 miles west of Timnah. I'm sorry, east of Timnah, just south of Bethlehem. And he hangs out there in, in some sort of a cave. I'm not sure what he's doing there. Probably moping over how what his life has come to and how his wife is now dead. and Maybe he's some ways hiding for a little bit just to collect himself. But he's sitting there in the cave and he's all alone. So his revenge in verses 1 through 8. In verses 9 through 13, we see Samson's capture. Samson's capture. The Philistines in verses 9 and 10 stage a battle against Judah in order to get Samson, in order to capture Samson. Now, the Philistines apparently knew that Samson was nearby. Because they bring in at least a thousand troops, because that's how many Samson's going to kill. But they bring in at least a thousand troops, and they they camp themselves right at the edge of Judah's camp. And you you know Judah; they're not very powerful right now. In fact, they're being oppressed by the Philistines. They they have no uh, they're they're not in in agreement with Samson and what he's doing at all. They're just wanting to kind of keep the peace with their leaders, the Philistines, and all of a sudden Samson's making trouble for them, and now all the Philistines are camping right next to them, and they know it's only going to get worse. And as they do this, they were intimidated. The Philistines were there, and so they ask in verse 10, what are you doing here? Why have you come, uh, why have you come up against us? And the Philistines say, because we want to take revenge on Samson. We want to capture him and effectively torture him. It's not that they wanted to kill him, Right away, they wanted to to do to him what he has done to us. And so somehow, Judah, in verses 11 through 13, is able to capture Samson. Now, Judah has two options. We need to recognize two options. The first is to capture Samson and hand him over to the Philistines. We know that that's what they end up doing. But the other option is actually to confide in Samson and say, All right, Samson, lead us into battle. We can take them. But they don't do that at all. They choose option number one. And they go to him in the cave where they know that he is living. And they effectively say in verse 11, listen, we don't want to make any waves in the pool. Our life, our lives are bad enough as it is under their rule and we just want to continue in that way. Similar to Israel when they were under the oppression of Egypt. They didn't like it then. But then when they started to see the alternative, when they're out in the wilderness and being chased by them, they're, 
complaining to Moses, I wish we were back there. Now, at least we knew what was going to happen every day. We, the fear of the unknown is often uh, worse than, than the actual uh, threat. So they come to Samson and say, listen, don't, don't make any wa- we don't want to make any waves, so why don't we just take you in? We're going to take you and give you over to, to the Philistines. See, they were fine with the Philistines ruling over them. They were fine with all this integration that was happening between the Jews and the Philistines. They were fine with even the syncretism, that is, the false worship of God, uh, the, the worship of false gods, I should say, that, that was going on because that's what happens when they intersperse with these, these foreign nations, as God predicted. And they were not confident in Samson's ability to protect them. Notice how Samson responds at the end of verse 11. Uh, he tells them, uh, or, sorry, he, the middle of verse 11 says, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? This is the, the Judeans talking. What then is that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I've done to them. And they said, we've come down to bind you so that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And here's what Samson, how he replies. He says, swear to me that you won't kill me. And so they do. We're not going to kill you. And they bind him with two new ropes. Keep that in mind for next week because the Philistines are going to try to do the same thing. And he's going to break them apart just as easily as he does in this story. Samson's revenge, verses 1-8. to Samson's capture, verses 9 to 13. Verses 14 to 17, Samson's escape. Samson's escape and attack. Or we could say, Samson's escape and further revenge. Verse 14, Samson approaches the Philistine garrison and they greet him with a shout. This is not, hey, Samson, how are you doing? It's more like a shout of a battle cry. Let's take him. Let's overtake him before he gets away. But notice the text of Scripture, middle of verse 14, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. This is a phrase we've seen over and over again in the story of Samson particularly. He came upon him mightily so that the ropes that were on his arm were as flax that is burned with fire. The rope that's put over fire and quickly snaps. This is how easily Samson's able to break these brand new ropes from his arm. And then his attack is in verses 15 through 17. He kills a thousand Philistines by using the jawbone of a donkey. And as he uses the jawbone of a donkey again, he violates one of the prohibitions in the Nazarite vow, which was do not touch an unclean thing. Okay, you can't eat. You can't uh, have any anything from the vine. No grapes. No wine. Nothing like that. You can't have any of that your entire life. You can't touch any unclean thing. We've already seen him violate both of these twice. And the third one we're going to see him violate next week, which is do not shave your head. And he allows it to be shaved by Delilah. So here, he's using the jawbone of a donkey in violation of the Nazarite vow. And with that jawbone, he's able to kill 1,000 Philistines. And there's no mention of the 3,000 men of Judah doing anything. It seems to me, based on what the way that the text reads in verse 15, that it was all Samson. There's nothing about the 3,000 men of Judah apparently just standing back and watching. Samson's just tearing them apart. 
then what happens when you win such a decisive battle against an impossible enemy? What do you do? Verse 16, you write a song about yourself. That's what Samson does. He says, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heap, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have killed a thousand men. Literally, that first line, with the jawbone of a donkey, heap and double heap. I've stacked them up in a huge heap, all of them. That's, that's all me. I like the NIV's translation of this phrase, kind of bringing it in, it gives us the idea a little bit more with the second line, or the third and fourth line, I should say. And it reads this way, With the donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. That's the idea of Samson saying, Look at what I have done. And there he names the place Ramoth Lehi, which if you look in the margin of your Bible under verse 16, uh, verse 17, excuse me, you see that it means the high place of the jawbone. So we have Samson's revenge, Samson's capture, Samson's escape, and then finally, verses 18 through 20, Samson's complaint. Samson's complaint. All that fighting and singing about yourself really makes you thirsty. So, so Samson, being thirsty, even perhaps to the point of thirsting to death, thinking that he might thirst to death, this fearless, mighty Samson who could defeat an army single-handedly was still weak and now was fearful of dying of thirst. Now, he could have been embellishing like we tend to do. You know, I am starving to death. We don't really mean that. We just mean we're hungry, right? So he could have been embellishing that a little bit. But, but he could also very well be very literal here. I am thirsting. How are you going to let me die? That's what he says in verse 18, the middle of the verse. You've given me this great deliverance, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Now, keep in mind, these thousand Philistines are not all the Philistines. There's thousands left. In fact, David's going to kill thousands more Philistines when he comes along uh, several decades later. So, so there, they could, he could still be captured at this point. And he recognizes that. And he doesn't want to be in that position. In all of his arrogance, in all of his look at me and what I can do, God causes him to be thirsty so that he would in some way acknowledge God and that God is the giver of life. God is the giver of victory. And that's what he does. He cries to God for help. He says, God, you helped me, but you're not helping me now. And God provides for him in verse 19 by opening... Uh, by opening this rock or this hollow place. And then the place is named apparently by Samson and Hakor, which in the margin of your Bible you should see in verse 19, the spring of him who called. And then verse 20, we have a short editorial note from the author that just tells us that he reigned for 20 years. And it's not clear why that's put there. Uh, because it's also put at the end of chapter 16. It could be that this really is the end of, uh, towards the end of his reign and this, uh, these events with Delilah actually happened maybe uh, around the same time. Obviously, his death had to happen at the end. But, but he's coming to the end of his life and most of his adult life has been about vengeance. About taking out vengeance on the people who have harmed him or the 
or the things that He loves most. God accomplishes His purposes through flawed people. Is Samson a flawed person? When we evaluate the man, Samson, we need to evaluate both his actions and his motivations. Now, motivations are very difficult to nail down because we have to take a sampling of what's in a person's heart. Unless a person tells you their motivation, it's hard to know. It's almost impossible, if not extremely difficult. But we can take a sampling of a person's heart. How do you suppose we can take a sampling of a person's heart? Did not Jesus say, out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. So how can we take a sampling of a person's heart? How can you know what's in my heart? Listen to what I have to say. You can, you can start to understand some of the motivations behind how I think. So, same thing is true about Samson. If we want to know his motivations, we need to base that on some of the things that he did and some of the things that he said. So, let's think about just chapter 15 alone. There's a lot more we could look at in Samson's life in chapters 14 and 16, but just chapter 15 alone. What is Samson's motivation in going after the Philistines? Initially, when he comes back to retrieve his wife, spend the rest of his life with her, he was rejected at the doorstep, never able to see her, and as a result, what does he do? He, he says, I'm going to make it, I, I'm going to, to be even with you. This will be it. We will be even. His motivation is seen in his actions and in his words. He wasn't concerned about clearing the name of Israel. You know, this I am a representative of Israel and I want to make sure that Israel is not defamed and that my God is not defamed. There's no talk of that. It's all about his own personal feelings and, and his own personal vengeance. Well, the Philistines respond in vengeance in kind by killing his wife and his father-in-law how does Samson respond? Does he say, How dare you defy the living God? I come with the sword of the Lord. No, he slaughters a great number of them and then heads to a cave to pout. What is his motivation? Is it not personal vengeance? And then when he's handed over to the Philistines by his own people, he kills a thousand more Philistines. And he sense that Samson's doing this to free the people of Israel from the tyranny of the Philistines. Any sense that Samson recognized the injustice of the Philistines on God's chosen nation? No. What does he write a song about? Anything about God in there? Anything about Israel? It's about him and his ability to, to pile them heap on heap. After the jawbone battle, he's thirsting to death, death and he calls to God. And he acknowledges the victory in prayer to God. And so he could take that and say, there. That's an act of faith by Samson. He's acknowledged God and now he's turning to God for help. But is it just me or did that prayer ring a little hollow to you? Like, Mom and Dad, you are the best parents ever, but can I borrow $50 so I can go out with my friends? Like, God, thank you. You are the deliverer of me and all of my troubles and all of my battles. I need a drink or I'm going to die. See, Samson's adult life, based on his actions and what he says, 
lives the life of revenge. He angers the Philistines. They return the favor. He responds with killing. They return the favor on someone that he loves. It goes on and on. The cycle doesn't end. He actually dies in this cycle of vengeance with the Philistines. So the answer to the question, is Samson a flawed person, is yes. Now the question we want to finish with is, does God still accomplish His purposes through flawed people? And we worked at this last week a bit, but I'll just touch on it again. Does God still accomplish His purposes through flawed people? Just like in chapter 14, we need to see that God was behind Samson's attack. Look at verse 14 again. When he's standing there bound before the Philistines as the the men of Judah are taking him captive and handing him over, notice what it says. When when he came to Lehi, the Philistines shouted as, as they met him, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. Why would God do this? Why would God use Samson, a flawed person, Why not instead use someone of great faith? A man like Abraham or a man like Joseph or David or Daniel or the three three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Why not use someone like that? Why not wait around for, for someone better? Despite Samson's wrong intentions, God has good intentions for the slaughter of the Philistines. And it is this. To remove the bond, the connection that the Philistines have with Israel so that Israel would stop worshiping the false gods of the Philistines. We look at a story like this and think, why and how would God ever work through a person like Samson? So flawed. But the real question is, why would God ever work through any sinner at all? Why would God ever use a sinner to accomplish His purposes? If God only worked with unflawed people, then He would never work. If God only worked with unflawed people, then it would limit God. It would limit what He could do. His hands would be tied because He would be waiting around for the right kind of person through whom He could work. But God is not limited to man's ability. God is not limited to man's faithfulness. He is unlimited in His ability to work and accomplish His purposes. God accomplishes His purposes through flawed people. Do you believe that? And are you thankful for that? When we come to understand this, we start to know more of the grace of God. That God would be willing to choose to use people like you and me despite our flaws. This is the kind of people that God loves to use. Now, that doesn't give us a, a, a license to sin. Should we go on sinning so that grace may abound, so that God can get more glory through using weaker people? May it never be, Paul says in Romans 6. Right. So that's not the point. Don't, don't go off to the other extreme and say, well, then it doesn't matter how I live. Hey, it is a great privilege for us to serve God despite the flaws that we have in our life. But here's what we need to take from this tonight. God is happy to use you. No matter what sort of past you have, no matter what circumstances you're in right now, God is happy to 
to use you. And there's all sorts of things that He would love to use you for. And what we can know from this is that God's plans will not be thwarted. God will accomplish His purposes. And when we look back on that, and we look back on, man, it used me even though I know all the things that that I was doing, I was thinking, how I had improper motives sometimes when I was doing them. And He used me still. See how that highlights the grace of God in us? Certainly we work towards more and more grace. We, we work towards more and more holiness. And we want to be more like a Paul or a David. But, but at the same time, we have to recognize that God is always always using flawed people to accomplish His purposes. Father, we are amazed at Your mercy. We're amazed at how You work through us. Lord, the, the primary way in which You make Your name known, that You spread Your glory, is by showing mercy to Your people. And we can't think of another group of people that, that uh, loves Your mercy and, and, and begs for Your mercy more than we do. Lord, we want see Your mercy come to us. So we pray for Your grace. Pray that You would, would, would use us despite us and help us even when we are holy, even when we are pursuing faithfulness. And to use us still, we pray that, that we would not take the credit for it, that we would not do it in pride and, and write songs about ourselves in our minds, but that we would deflect the glory to You. Lord, You are worthy of all of our worship, all of our service. Help us not just to serve You, but to love You with all of our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name.